It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. It became the hacker boogeyman of the ages. The mysterious group Anonymous has struck again with a warning. This is just the beginning. Covert vigilantes making the powerful pay. Hackers are rushing to defend WikiLeaks and its jailed founder, Julian Assange. So-called hacktivists operating under the label Operation Payback have claimed responsibility for knocking MasterCard, Visa, and several other websites offline. And the inspiration for hit TV show. Greetings, brothers and sisters. We are F-Society. It is anonymous, and it was Legion. But then, at least in the last few years, the group of infamous hacktivists seemed to disappear. This week on Cyber, we have Biela Coleman, professor of anthropology at McGill University in Montreal, who for many years was, and still is, the anonymous whisperer. She wrote an amazing book called Hacker, Hoaxer, Whistleblower, Spy, The Many Faces of Anonymous, and she's on the show to tell us about whatever happened to Anonymous. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So, Biala, thanks for coming on the show. This is, this is the first time on the podcast, but you were also a consultant for us on Cyberwar. That's right. Um, so I've been around the block, but but not not at this particular place. <laughs> so okay, this is something that Jason Kepler and I and Motherboard have discussed before in the past. But sort of what happened to Anonymous? But before we get into that, why don't we just sort of lay the the groundwork? How did Anonymous begin? So the beginnings of Anonymous um, lie on the image board 4chan which has become quite famous in recent times for being a kind of hotbed for far-right and reactionary right activity. Um, but back then, in 2003, four or five, the name was used by trolls and pranksters who were coordinating um, campaigns, often of harassment against individuals or organizations. And one of their most famous campaigns came in 2008 against the Church of Scientology after a video of Tom Cruise was leaked to the press um, that showed him being excessively exuberant about the Church of Scientology, right? (laughs) One of the great moments um, on the internet, right? Now, this is January 2008. Anonymous is strong now. You know, we're not a little dinky fucking group anymore. Like, this is like millions of people worldwide and we're watching and then Scientology stepped in with a big target on its chest. The, the trolling campaign came after the Church of Scientology threatened to sue over the video. They never did, actually. And maybe in part because of the massive outburst that came from Anonymous, where they basically were pranking uh, Scientology phone lines and sending them pizzas. Um, and during the course of that trolling campaign... Uh, some kind of earnest protesters against Church of Scientology kind of ask Anonymous to reconsider their tactics and kind of protest legitimately and earnestly. And through kind of some experiments, they did so. And that was when the kind of hacktivist movement of Anonymous started to kind of come into being in 2008. And then they sort of, I mean, I remember when I started reporting on them, they they congregated online in these sort of secret chat groups, or even they were open, but, you know, these chat groups, and then they started to plan things from there. 
That's right. That's right. And and then they, you know, they got their their hands into all sorts of um, places and events. And it was really when they started to get involved with defending WikiLeaks um, in 2010 and then 2011 uh, with the Arab Spring that they kind of just exploded. And so many people started to join their chat rooms where they launched the operations that were kind of geared towards distributed denial of service attacks, publicity campaigns, and eventually it turned into hardcore hacking not not long after. The FBI rounded up alleged members of a hacking gang that calls itself Anonymous. And, you know, we, we should take a second to, to sort of talk about the branding because they use that V for Vendetta mask, the Guy Fox mask, which was kind of amazing. That's right. And, you know, it's, it's so funny because um, there's two really interesting elements about the mask, one of which was first they adopted it sort of by accident. When they first organized street protests against the Church of Scientology, people were like, hey, we should cover our faces to protect ourselves because Scientology was quite famous for going after protesters. And so, you know, the Guy Fox mask and V for Fendetta was already part of the kind of cultural atmosphere of geekdom, right? And so people suggested the mask because it was like, you know, familiar and easy to buy. And then the, the second element too was it became, you know, on the one hand, anonymous was mysterious, but the mask was recognizable as a symbol. Absolutely. And it's also recognizable as a symbol of anti-government or fighting for, for the little guy. It's sort of this idea of vigilantism. Exactly. Exactly. And it allowed kind of people to, on the one hand, understand what was otherwise a very mysterious collective. And then the videos were just so good. The like we are anonymous, we we will remember kind of thing was <laughs> so good. We are anonymous. We are legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget. Expect us. That's right. Their videos were um, very well made. They had kind of high production um, value to them. They were short. They were snappy. And it was one of the reasons why they were good at both recruiting people and getting word out um, when it came to particular operations was precisely the videos, the large Twitter accounts, which was the kind of public interfacing side of what was otherwise a very geeky phenomenon that a lot of people didn't know, you know, how to kind of tap into, into this world. And then, of course, it became sort of this shadowy cultural moment, even parodied on stuff like Mr. Robot, where, I mean, it's clear where the reference comes from. Oh, it was picked up everywhere in popular culture, you know, from Hollywood movies like Who Am I? No System is Safe, which is a great hacker movie that was released in Germany, to Mr. Robot, to kind of some very um, esoteric uh cultural domains. For example, there was a ballet in Boston that was all based on anonymous, if you can believe it. That's crazy. I did not yeah. know that. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I had no idea that was the thing. <laughs> That's right. A ballet. <laughs> a ballet. <laughs> they became part of the cultural zeitgeist. You know, they were, um, they were able to grab that attention because of the high profile hacks. They weren't simply a hacking shop. But that's what they got um, the most attention for, understandably. And then, you know, people were intrigued and started to kind of reference them 
in movies and, and TV and plays and in all sorts of places. And the other thing too is, I mean, like you said, they're part of the zeitgeist, but then, you know, they, they, they were kind of trailblazers of a lot of different, uh, different concepts that we then wrestled with politically in the years to follow. Something like, you know, they were anti-surveillance before anti-surveillance was a real conversation. That's right. You know, in, in some ways they were really ahead of the times when it came to certain issues that they really cared about, like privacy and fighting surveillance and rode the kind of wave of some of the big leaks around these issues with people like Edward Snowden, right? This was happening at the same time where the hacker um, or the, you know, politically minded technologist became a really significant geopolitical actor, you know, between 2010, 2013, 14, and 15. Anonymous was very much part of that mix. Absolutely. Especially if you look at something like, you know, Phineas Fisher, for example. That's right. That's right. And this is what's interesting. And this is what you kind of mentioned, which is on the one hand, anonymous isn't really present anymore. And we can talk about why that may be, but their legacy is everywhere, right? Their legacy is just everywhere, whether it's the use of the mask in the Hong Kong protests. And they also are very committed to anonymity as a tactic or with Phineas Fisher, who is a hacktivist who has broken into security companies to leak information to the public and to journalists. And that was a tactic that was really, you know, not quite invented by Anonymous, but they are the ones who really um, made it uh, a paradigm and protocol that became so visible and they did it so much that it became a template for others to adopt and mimic. Well, they brought it into the modern internet age, I think, is, is really the, 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 their contribution in that way, right? They're the ones that brought that mass protest organized in such a way that used computers, used the internet that had not been seen before. Absolutely. And again, the kind of tactic of hacking into a corporation or a government in order to kind of take information to leak to the public that was really something we only saw in tiny bits and pieces before the anonymous era. They put it on the table and boy, oh boy, did others from governments um, like Russia to other hacktivists, you know, they started to adopt that tactic. Absolutely. I, I was telling Jason on our, on our end of decade episode of this, this podcast that I think anonymous was also this trailblazer in the idea that I think is extremely prevalent today that you know, the average citizen doesn't matter and the government and corporations are running everything and the only way to stop it is to unite. And I think that Anonymous sort of brought that concept into into the mainstream in a way, or at least started it. Because you see grains of it, you know, in, in, in Bernie's campaign, you see it in, in even in Trump's campaign in, in 2016. This sort of idea, I think, was something that Anonymous introduced. Yeah, I mean, it was, there's always, you know, there's certain moments where a kind of politics, where a kind of grassroots movement congeals and rises up against uh, corruption in the governmental or corporate sphere. Um, And Anonymous, I think, was particularly powerful in the way that they were able to marry a kind of direct action politics, um, where they really... Um, got people to contribute to operations or decided to do a lot of hacking, which is 
extremely high risk. And they, they married those activities with rich visual material, um, like their videos, which got a lot of people excited about what they did. Although they were also very controversial as well. And, and they and, had, and it allowed them to sort of forecast what they could do. Right. Right. Absolutely. The other thing, if we're going to talk about that, we got to talk about LulzSec. I mean, probably the most, the most successful branch of anonymous or anonymous, you know, adjacent group ever. They allegedly breached government websites, major financial services, entertainment conglomerates, and law enforcement networks. Six elite hackers from LulzSec, an offshoot of the hacktivist group Anonymous, have been arrested in the U.S., Britain, and Ireland, charged with hacking and other crimes, which authorities say affected more than a million victims. That's right. So LulzSec uh, was composed of a handful of hackers. Many of them had been involved in Anonymous, and they kind of wanted to go on a hacking spree. Um, and they kind of knew that some of their hacks weren't politically oriented. In part, they were just to show how bad um, security was, right? And they felt like they had to kind of rebrand in order not to um, anger Anonymous, which at that time had become pretty political. And so they, they kind of formed a breakaway group. Lulsec had great imagery of a nyan cat and rainbows and pirate boats and went on a 50-day hacking spree. And they were clearly having a lot of fun uh, doing so. There were that kind of old school hacker, all for the lulz kind of classic hacker group. You know, like like they really were, you know, they were, they were hacking corporations. They're going after things and they were laughing about it. <laughs> That's right. They're having a great time, right? Um, and little did they know and, there was a there was certainly somebody within them that were feeding information to the authorities. You know, eventually you're gonna get caught. You know, when you first start getting into hacking, start reading stories from like the hackers, the ancient hackers from the '80s and so on. Those guys all got caught. Most of them did get caught. So you expect it. Um, and once you start hacking, like it's you know it's a point of return. You're not coming back. You know, it's you're getting caught eventually. That's right. So one of the members, Sabu, had been um, tapped by the FBI. And they basically said, look, if you don't cooperate and give us information, if you don't funnel us information, we are going to you know, throw you in jail and, and do some other horrible things. And so he decided to cooperate. Exactly. So there was an informant. <laughs> there was an informant. Inside. Which ended up with a few people in jail, including Jeremy Hammond, who's sort of this legendary hacker himself. That's right. So right when LulzSec was disbanding uh, in 2011 during the summer, uh, they were also, re some of the members reinvented themselves into a kind of more militant political group called AntiSec. And Jeremy Hammond, who was a very kind of activist-oriented hacker, had joined up. Um, and it was right at that moment of transition uh, when Sabu became an informant and precisely some of the information that he handed over kind of helped authorities zero in and arrest some of the hackers who had been part of LulzSec and who had jumped over to AntiSec. And I mean, we look at something like the Stratfor hack, which is a private intelligence firm, and it was this sort of pretty spectacular owning of this company that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, quite a few of them ended up in jail for it. That's right. And, and it was, as you said, spectacular for a couple reasons, one of which was they took the emails 
Um, they gave them to WikiLeaks. Uh, but Hammond also wanted to engage in active sabotage and deleted all of their files as well. Exactly. And the other thing was, you know, someone like Barrett Brown, who was ostensibly their their spokesperson, got got wrapped into it and he ended up serving time in prison. And, you know, he's an interesting character as well, because this is someone who, you know, the, for the crime that he allegedly committed or was convicted for, he served a lot of time, but it was pretty clear the U.S. government and the FBI was extremely angry at Barrett Brown and at Antisec and just wanted to throw the book at, the, at whoever they could in order to dissuade anyone from doing something like this again. Yeah, that's a really important case to highlight because Barrett Brown was not a hacker. Um, his skills were in kind of getting the word out, uh, getting people on board. He was excellent, excellent kind of minister of propaganda for anonymous very savvy very very smart and indeed he yeah, got incredibly in trouble smart guy. <laughs> very smart guy and he got in trouble because he wanted to publish the stratford emails <laughs> right um and many different organizations had published on them and simply for kind of that request he ended up serving five years in jail which is astounding and disturbing and some time in the shoe Right. Exactly. I mean, um, you know, he's out now. Uh, Jeremy Hammond, on the other hand, is still in jail for uh, his conviction. So he's the one that served the, the longest for these hacks. So we fast forward into the ISIS era and there's all these sort of anti-ISIS operations that that Anonymous uh, engaged in and also these splinter groups like GhostSec and Ghost Security Group. But since then, we haven't really heard a lot from... I mean, Anonymous, period. What happened? Like, whatever happened to Anonymous is sort of the question that I always ask myself. So I think that there is um, two places to go for trying to find an explanation as to why they kind of petered out. You know, one does have to do with the crackdowns, where a lot of people were arrested, not just in Europe and North America, but really across the globe. There was over 100 arrests. Um and again, while Anonymous wasn't simply about hacking, that is certainly where it got its kind of legs at some level. It, it's what allowed them to capture the public imagination. And so when that kind of element was um, taken off the table, right, uh, a lot of the energy that was powering the movement kind of um, dissipated. The other one is that, you know, Anonymous wasn't great at kind of social reproduction or recruitment either. Their recruitment was always oriented towards particular operations, right? And also they were kind of very, very decentralized. Um, operations came and they went. And so there wasn't much structure in order to kind of um, replicate themselves over time. Which is sort of this amazing asset that they could be so decentralized, but also kind of a major fault. That's exactly it, right? So the decentralization allowed anyone <clears throat> to pick up the name, to start an operation, but then there was no coordination or there was little coordination between groups. And oftentimes, if you want to exist over time, you have to think about how do we recruit? How do we stay around? These are things that require thoughts and processes, and, and that's not something they ever really attended to. There also has been some suspicion of this, and I think it's true, that, you know, 
some amount of the anonymous crew kind of got sucked into that pro-Trump campaign in 2016. And I don't think that's that's altogether wrong because I think anonymous was very politically, you know, the spectrum was wide. Well, I'd probably phrase it slightly differently, which is um, I think by the time anonymous was involved in many of the political operations, they had kind of broken away from the image boards But the image boards were really important for providing kind of participants, right? It was a place where kind of geeks and other types would be kind of attracted to movements like Anonymous. But on the image boards post-Gamergate, there was a lot of active recruitment by far-right figures in those image boards to kind of turn them to reactionary politics, Right. Mm -hmm. And then those domains then became kind of hotbeds for the reactionary right. And I think some portion of those participants would have fed into the kind of left progressive anonymous movements. But then um, that kind of funnel was cut off in certain respects once it became a kind of hotbed for, you know, the far right. And um, these image boards became a perfect place for recruiting people and launching a lot of disinformation campaigns as well. Where is Anonymous now? Is it still a thing? Is it still a real thing? You know, it's it's not so much, right? There are still some operations, um, some of the classic core operations against the Church of Scientology continue, right? But it's really a kind of um, ghost of its former self. I think, again, the legacy lies in certain types of tactics that still continue. And, you know, the history of hacktivism tends to kind of ebb and flow. It's one that's not ever been consistent, but tends to appear and then disappear. Right. Um, You have stuff like the cult of the dead cow. And then, you know, then years later, you get something like anonymous. Exactly. And so I think that style of hacktivism will return. Um, whether or not it will take the form of anonymous is an open question, but certainly some of the tactics will, will continue and do continue with individuals like Phineas Fisher. Well, I mean, your book was just uh, an incredible telling of this extremely cultural moment. So thank you for making something like that for, for us all to realize what an impact it was. Yeah, it was um, a very exciting time and it was great that there was a handful of academics and journalists who were embedded in a world that, you know, would have been otherwise really hard to understand if there weren't people in the in the trenches following them. Do you ever still talk to some of these old anonymous people, people that never actually got revealed? Uh, I do talk both to some people who had never been arrested and then others who um, had been arrested or outed um, are people I still stay in touch with. And I just saw them at uh, the Chaos Computer Club Congress meeting, for example, in in Germany, and they're still around, you know, getting PhDs in cryptography and speaking up on Twitter and and doing some really interesting things. Isn't uh, isn't that camp happening this this uh, summer? Well, the camp happened last summer. Oh, it was and it then, last summer? Yeah, and then the the yearly Congress happens right, right. after Christmas um, in Germany. Gotcha. Okay, so I also wanted to give you some time to plug an exciting new project you have. So why don't you tell us about it? Sure. So um, I've just launched a website called Hack Curio. And it is in some ways 
like an online museum of videos and all the videos are related to the hacker world. And each video is short and comes with an entry about it. And we, we are hoping to get people to think about computer hacking differently through this website uh, because it's a website where you could actually see a lot of hackers be interviewed for documentaries or give talks. Um, and there's also a lot of material related to hack hackers as they've been portrayed in film um, and ads. And so it's a kind of video portal into hackerdom that uh, allows people to actually see and learn from hackers uh, in a way that um, they might not otherwise kind of come across in, in everyday life. Well, what I love about the idea of this is that it's it's treating hacking not only as, you know, I love the idea of a hacker museum, but also that hacking and this this era of hacking that you describe and you're so involved in was such a historical moment. And we now have to look at it as such. And it's it's important to sort of take stock of that. That's right. You know, even though hacking hasn't been around for a long time, it, it does have a history, right? And it has a diversity as well. So security hackers may not be quite the same type of technologist as a free software hacker. And the hacktivist is doing some things slightly different um, than the blockchain developer. And so what the site allows you to do is both see the diversity of hacking um, and also learn about its kind of history and its contemporary manifestations as well. I went to the spy museum in, mm. in, in New York. And it's, it's a strange, it's a strange place. Yeah. It's also extremely expensive. I went, I was like, holy shit. This How is like, much a, is it? it's like a hundred bucks. What? I, I showed up with a friend from, from, from Canada. And I'm like, well, I guess like we came all the way to Manhattan, like midtown <laughs> to do this. So fuck That's it guys. Outrageous. We're going to, we're going to, it is very outrageous. <laughs> it was very expensive. And um, anyway, so one of the end of it is has all this stuff about anonymous, and I kept laughing because I thought to myself, I did think of you because I was given once, and I won't say who, but one of anonymous's big spokespeople gave me their mask, their guy Fox mask, as like a as like a token at the end of an interview once, and I still have it. And I thought to myself, oh, well, nice. that mask should probably be in this place, but this place, you know, that some like weird feds bought a bunch of Guy Fox masks and arranged them in this just very <laughs> swank. It has nothing to do with, uh, <laughs> with, uh, with real stuff. Cause I'm sure you've got some knickknacks as well. I do have some knickknacks and I do, I have collected enormous amount of material, uh, images and videos. And it's one of the reasons why I decided to create this website is to kind of convert my private collection, which I use a little bit in teaching into a public resource. Um, so that others can can learn, and it's great. We charge nothing for going to Hack Curio; it's all yeah. free. <laughs> Good. In fact, it, it costs us money, uh, but but thankfully we have some resources to to host the site as well. Well, thank you for coming on the pod. As always, Biela, great speaking with you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So Jason, happy you, uh, 2020. Yeah, happy 2020. You missed the first the first cyber of the year cuz you had black death. Yeah, I had the flu. I tried to come back for cyber specifically. I was going to be like Jordan game 6, you know, a flu performance, but uh it was the sickest I've ever been and the longest I've ever been sick and uh I don't know, maybe you can hear in my voice, still a little scratchy and coughy. No, I feel like you sound, you're sounding better. I'm going to cough throughout this podcast just for fun. Excellent. Well, I, that would be great. Yeah. I think it would be Listeners really nice will like you. that. Yeah, they'll really like it. Editors will like it. Yes. The phlegm and all that nonsense. So you came back to infect us all. Great. Yeah, well. I'm just going to say, Emmanuel, he had a... It's a bug. I don't want to hear about Emmanuel. He had, a just, very spicy, he had a very spicy appearance. A very spicy appearance. Yeah, well, on the pod. don't get used to it. Yeah, well, anyway. Okay, so let's get to, uh, you know, this is a good one to open up with. In um, shitty person news, uh, one of the uh, heads of Girls Do Porn, the founder, right? The founder, yeah. Michael Pratt, on the lamb. Yeah, so we've talked about Girls Do Porn several times on this podcast. Samantha Cole has been following it for Motherboard. Basically, killing the beat, killing the beat. Yeah, so it's a porn company based in Arizona that had that was sued for basically coercing girls into doing porn, women into doing porn uh, with very complicated contracts, sometimes plied them with booze and hotel rooms, uh, and then told them that the videos that they filmed were going to be shown only to rich people in New Zealand, like a DVD was going to be made and sent. But instead, they were put on Pornhub and all over the internet where they racked up millions of views and people doxed their real names and these women have faced harassment and what have you. Also, it's, it's like, terrible. didn't the fucking shitheads on Girls Gone Wild go to jail for like this exact thing, basically? I, I can't say I'm a historian on that, but uh, probably. Who knows? Ugh, yeah, God. so it was very bad. So anyways, Michael Pratt, the founder, is now a wanted fugitive in, ironically, New Zealand, where he said that this uh, this was going to happen. Well, that's I mean, apparently where, where gonna, he is, right? That's that's where they think he is. I mean, he's a wanted fugitive. No one really knows where he is. Yeah. But the FBI is actively looking for him. So that's that's the update. And, and I don't actually know if you talked about this last week because I was so sick that I didn't listen to Cyber. But the women actually won their lawsuit against him. So... I Fantastic. think it's like $30 million being doled out to like 100 women. So all the cyber listeners, if you have a tip on this guy, we have a, we have an article and his face is there. You can take a look. And if you've seen that guy, well, tell Sam Cole. <laughs> yeah. Michael uh, Pratt, hit us up. Michael, Yeah, Michael Pratt, slide in my DMs. I got some shit to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is, ah, here we go. Back. Here we're back. My favorite. Alien Hour? Alien Hour. Cue the music. Yes. The Navy 
as a secret classified video of an infamous UFO incident. This is the UFO incident that Tom DeLonge made public. It's called the Tic Tac video. My boy DeLonge coming through. So this is the one where it's like, it's U.S. Navy pilots back in 2004 off the coast of California. And if you've ever seen the video that's been released by Tom DeLonge, of all people, it's like this black and white, super grainy thing where it looks like a video game because it's like a heads up display. And there's like all these like uh, aircraft instrumentation numbers around. I don't know what it is. Yeah. And yeah, so there's a UFO in the distance and it, it flies off. And we talked about this a few other times. This is the video that the Navy and the Pentagon say is definitely an unidentified aerial phenomena is what they're calling it. So a UAP, they're not sure what it is. Oh man. And so one of our friends, one of our friends in the UFO community filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the Navy asking for all files and videos related to this. And rather than just giving a Glomar response where they're like, we can neither confirm nor deny, they straight up said, we have A, top secret classified documents, like a briefing that, uh, you know, we're not going to release because it's classified. And then Fuck. they said that they also have... Fuck, what does it say? I know. And then they also uh. said they have a secret classified other version of the video. That Which is not... probably higher def. Yeah, it's probably higher def. It's probably a fucking saucer or some shit. I know. It's it's definitely a color and, you know, you can clearly oh, see an alien popping out I like a that. green alien. Yeah. Oh. So they admitted that they have this video and they said they're not releasing it because it's a matter uh, integral to national security. So imagine if Trump threw out all this shit of his presidency. He's the alien president, too, where he's like, fuck it, guys. Disclosure. Give it to us, Trump. Oh, man. Ugh. I would Ta- all wouldn't be forgiven, but that'd be a pretty cool thing to do. Yeah, yeah it all definitely would be forgiven, but I would be cool with that. Yeah. Uh, also, Tom DeLong, please come on the pod. Yeah, we need to hit him up. It's been it's oh, been a minute. Oh man, I he want, was on our I want, old podcast. I've got so much to ask him. Yeah, let's I have really, him on. We can call him up. I we think should get him on. on. Yeah, it would be great. I I think it would be. I just want to know more. I I kind of want to know if he's because now he's like if there's anybody on Earth who aliens would go to to like predisclose that they're coming, it's him. Right. So other news that we didn't cover, but he just sold all of his back rights to the Blink One Eighty Two catalog. Like really? two weeks ago. And I think it's probably to help fund the search. Damn. Hey, by the way, for all you cyber listeners, you know, Jason and I sang some Blink-182 together at a karaoke recently. Yeah, I think there's audio of it. There is. There's yeah. not. I don't think there is. <laughs> we were we shredded, though. Anyway, uh, moving on from my favorite topic to another topic that is very interesting and uh, stupid because there's a company that's creating tombstone surveillance cameras. Yeah, I think that this could have been a full episode of Cyber, honestly, because this is a fucking saga, if ever there was one. Uh, Freddie Martinez, who's been on the show, right? Freddie's been on the show. Freddie's been on the show. He filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the city of Irvine, California, for all of their facial recognition documents. And they sent him hundreds of pages of documents. And part of the documents was a catalog for this company called Secret... Services LLC. Can you double check? I think it's Secret Services LLC. Special Services Group. Special Services Group. I stand corrected. Secret Services LLC is close, though. Yeah. And so Special Services Group's logo is 
the uh, pyramid from the back of the $1 bill with the eye in it. Which is well known for being like, like this an weird Illuminati, Illuminati it's sign. It's associated with Illuminati. Yeah. And <laughs> Why would you do that? And their, lo- their Such a, it's, slogan... It's also, that's, that's mailing it in if I've ever seen it. Their like, slogan is constant vigilance. <laughs> and so they sent the, the cops a catalog of all of the things that they sell called their Black Book. And in the Black Book... They're selling, you know, surveillance cameras, your standard surveillance cameras, like body cams. They're selling, I don't know, like CCTV type stuff. But then they have this whole other class of stuff that is very insidious, 1984, creepy as fuck, where one of the items is a tombstone camera, like a literal gravestone yeah, with say, the camera. Which is insane. Like, when would you need that? Surveilling, That's got to be like a one-time thing. A, you're looking for ghosts. Yeah. B, you're like surveilling a mafia funeral or something. Yeah. And like, I, you know, th- okay, I agree. Very insidious. Very weird. Very creepy. Also just like off James Bond shit. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like kind of like, again, mailing it in James Bond shit. Yeah, so the other things that stuck out to me, there's like, I don't know, 50 different items that they're selling, and a lot of them are just like weird wires, and I don't know, it's fun to look through. But other things they're selling is a camera inside of a baby car seat, so like for children, for for literal babies. Spy on that baby. Spy on the baby. And Mm -hmm. then another one was a shop vac, like you'd have in a workshop or, you know, like a... I don't know. Whatever. A mechanic's office. Yeah. If you're like vacuuming up sawdust and shit, like camera and microphone hidden in that. And then my favorite one was they had a microphone that you put inside your mouth. So it's like if you were, let's say you were going to flip on your buds and rather than like wearing a wire where you're getting patted down at at the club and they're finding the wire on you and then they're going to kill you, you put a microphone inside behind your teeth, inside your mouth. And it also had like an earpiece that apparently you could have like a conversation with the guy in the FBI van outside uh, and it'd play like in your mouth and only you could hear it. I don't know if this shit works, but they're like selling it. And okay, that mouth thing's kind of interesting. That's it's tight. Smart. We That's, should use it for cyber. Yeah, we Ca- should catch some uh, yeah, yeah. some audio. Yeah, catch that audio. Yeah. In any case, so this is very like wild, and we know now that cops are looking at this stuff and they can buy this stuff. Who knows if anyone is actually using this gravestone camera? But we're like, oh, this is an interesting thing we should write about. So Joseph Cox goes and asks for comment from the company, and rather than being like, oh yeah, like you know we made we, that shit yeah whatever. we make that stuff and but we only work with cops who say that they'll use it like according to the law or whatever rather than saying that like every other company would say they sent us a like 800 word legal threat from their lawyers what yeah you didn't read the article did you ben no i was i was traveling when it came out yeah Let's just be clear so they sent us a serious legal threat being like if you publish this article we will sue you uh, what they said that it violated itar so that's the, uh, I actually forget what ITAR stands for, but it's like the International Trafficking Arms yeah. Regulations or something. Yeah, yeah, where it's, yeah, it's, a, it's like yeah. to prevent uh, like weapons companies from selling weapons and missiles and shit to well, like foreign I've, countries, I've, as well as like a lot of stuff yes, falls under ITAR. I, I have heard, and I told Joseph this, I have heard that this particular company also sells, I mean, does sell to or tries to, to militaries. Yeah, I mean, they sell to the DEA, which is a civilian organization, but it has like a 
law side and then they sell to the FBI and Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So they're like, if you publish this, you're violating ITAR, which is not true because it's literally just promotional materials. It's like, you know, a magazine of here's what you can buy. It's not like you could make something. It's pretty nice to get those, those types of stupid letters. Yeah. And then they also said that like, quote, given recent world events, this would be highly irresponsible to publish. And they were referring to Iran. What 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 is this? Yeah, they're what are like, you like what do you do? You, do you have like a are you Northrop Grumman and you're talking about some some fucking nukes? Come on, it's a tombstone cam. Yeah, I Take mean, there's, there's other stuff in there too, and it's also they had they had nothing to back it up. Also, the the document was already public. It was public on this service called Muckrock. You also which FOIA'd is, it. Yeah, it was re- so it was overviewed by uh, lawyers. Yeah. who like. For let the government, go. who yeah. let it go. They're like, oh, yeah. this is in the public interest. So we published and like, you know, I don't want to get too into it, but I don't yeah, think let's we've not heard get too uh, let's not get too cocky, but yeah, uh, looks like. Uh, Anyways, this is a cool story. A lot yeah, of people read like it. You should go, uh, go go check it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Read it. I'll read it too. Apparently. Um, and then we've got our final one: this Colorado mystery drones story, which I know you're into because you are a drone man. You are. Mr. I, w- drone. I was the drone man. I started at Motherboard writing about drones in 2013. You were drone life. I was drone life, and uh, this took me back. I didn't write it. Our new senior staff writer, Aaron Gordon, wrote it. Killing the game. What's Aaron? up to Aaron? Aaron, Aaron welcome, welcome to the team. Welcome yeah. to the squad. This story was sick. Uh, so around Christmas, there were all these news reports about drones flying over Colorado, like rural Colorado, and people had no idea what they were. Um, and it was like drone panic, you know, where they're like, oh, like these drones, they're, it's literally UFOs. No one knows what they are being like, oh, let's do something about these drones because they're spying on us or what have you. Like literally no one knew what they were. All these people were seeing lights in the sky and they're like, oh, must be like someone surveilling us or like kids with their drones or maybe it's ISIS in Colorado or whatever. So over the course Colorado of- Colorado would definitely be an ISIS target just to- For sure. Like definitely- so over the course of a couple of weeks, people keep seeing these lights. And it got to the point where like the FBI is investigating, the FAA is investigating, and like 80 different law enforcement groups across Colorado and western Nebraska have called like a task force to discover what the hell these things are. And so that's, I don't know, that's uh, alarming, I guess. However, we've seen this before where anytime there's like a pilot who sees something in the sky and then they're like, oh, I almost crashed and it was a drone. I almost hit a drone. It later turns out that it was never, it's almost never a drone. It's like usually a flock of geese or a weather balloon or there's always some other explanation. Mm -hmm. And so there's a conspiracy theory going around like the drone hobbyist community right now that it's like the media and the FAA and uh, like, the cops blowing shit out of proportion because the FAA just uh, released like a new proposed regulation that would require all drones to have a tracking beacon on them. Mm -hmm. So they're like, oh, this is going to ruin our hobby. And like they're using this shit in Colorado to. Also, can I just say, I think it's really funny being a drone hobbyist. I do think it's funny. Yeah, it's funny. Like 
the most popular thing to do with your drone is to take it into the desert and shoot these wide vistas and then overlay it with uh, with EDM music and upload it to your YouTube and get like 12. Wow, wide, wide desert vistas with EDM. Just, just what the world needed when drones came out. I swear to God, this is like 95% of all drone videos have EDM music over them. Oh, and great. Just, yeah. Yeah. So also oceans. People like oceans yeah. too. And they're the ones that have the biggest problem with the FAA. I mean, not that that's not, I, I don't support that but i mean you know yeah so in any case like we went on these drone hobbyist forums and all these people are like oh we've seen this before like this has happened before and it the turns mystery out, drone swarm in colorado yeah no but it turns out that the only published photo right now is th- this uh denver post like it's a black screen and there's like a couple like a blurry some blurry lights and these people on an airline forum like figured out that it was a seven forty seven. Like it's just a fucking plane, just um, a regular plane. Why? Why? So is it's it... like we don't think that this exists. We don't think that there's any drones. It's just like mass panic and hysteria. Well, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories around the Denver airport. Are there? Yeah, it's like you know that there's like this weird that people always talk about, like the weird Illuminati things and like the actual airport and stuff. No, oh yeah, yeah. I think and there's I knew been that, like yeah. some connection to UFOs too. Yeah, I think the main conspiracy around the. Denver airport is people fly in, they immediately go to a dispensary and then they cross the state line into Nebraska. And yeah, there you go. That's the biggest conspiracy. Also, there is an air base in Colorado though, isn't there? V- Vandenberg? Is Vandenberg yeah, there? Yeah, I think so. Or, or is Vanden- near it? Close to it? Something like that. Anyway. Is Vandenberg, the, what's the one in, in California? Is that Vandenberg? I don't think so. I think that Vandenberg is like, in, is it in Colorado? You know, if someone's going to be listening to this and realize we both don't I, know what we're talking about. I left my phone upstairs, so I can't Google things. So well, whatever is, it is. There's this an airbase. This is just raw there's an, I know there's brain an, knowledge I know there's an airbase close to Denver. Yes. I know that. Is it, does it start with a Mick? McHenry? I mean, like Mick, everything in this yeah. fucking country. Anyways, uh, please. We could. We would normally look it up, and I, neither of us are from Colorado. We're, yeah, exactly. We're East Coast boys. East Coast boys Anyways. to the end. Okay, cool. Well, so that's the cipher. Um, thank you for coming back, Jason. It's great to hear your voice. It's, it's good to be back. And we all we we were lighting candles for you to get over the plague, and you did. And it's great. It's great I did. news. And now my girlfriend has it. Oh, that sucks. Devastating. She. Well, that's what she signed up for when you lived together. Yeah. All right. Well. Farewell. Goodbye. This week's episode was recorded by Andrew Bursick, edited by Ricardo Contreras, and voiced by me. Ben Maku. You'll be hearing from us next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.